So I'm really excited that you're all here tonight for the third week of Ephesians. And usually I don't give disclaimers. I learned early on not to stand up on the stage and and give all these reasons why this won't be right or that won't be right. But I will just say tonight, I am so full of messages inside of me because I've been been editing the video from Ephesians 2. I've been practicing for Ephesians 3. Ephesians 4 is already written. It's already written for next week. And then tomorrow, I'm sharing my testimony in Pinehurst in Fayetteville, and that's a 25-minute memorized message. And then I'm also writing a 30-minute message that I'm sharing in, I guess, 16 days in Greensboro. So I'm editing that. So I have been all over the place, but God has been so faithful to wake me up early and just to give me wisdom. And I came and practiced this on Monday, and last night I was going to pick it up and review it again, and I was just like, no, I know this stuff. I've lived it. I've breathed it. And, and this week, I've really had to teach myself. I've had to apply it. So I want to welcome you to Ephesians 3. And does everybody have a handout? I have a lot of the information on the handout so you don't have to scribble so fast. I can't put everything on the slides and in the handout. So Father, I just ask that you would speak through me. We thank you. I I just thank you for the encouraging word that you have for us from Ephesians 3. And I pray that every person tonight would leave encouraged. In Jesus' name. So if you're new this week, I do teach out of the New American Standard Bible, and there are a couple of commentaries that I refer to, the uh, Wearsby Commentary and the John MacArthur Commentary. And Warren Wearsby, I highlight about every other paragraph. He's like Bill Johnson. He drops these tweetable quotes, and I'm just like, wow. And so I want to share those with you. So let's talk briefly about the Ephesians content overview. You know by now that the first three chapters are theology and doctrine. And tonight there's a little bit more application, which is good. That's my favorite part is really applying it to our lives. And then next week we'll get more into the behavior and practical instruction. Okay, so for Ephesians 1, we learned about our riches in Christ. We learned that we were chosen, adopted, forgiven, redeemed. We're graced with grace. We have an inheritance. We're sealed with Holy Spirit, so we are rich in Christ. And then we remember that first prayer of Paul where he prayed that our eyes would be enlightened so that we would know the hope of our calling to know these riches and the exceeding greatness of his power. So in Ephesians 2, we learned about grace expressed in kindness, and then we also learned about one new man. We talked extensively about those Jews and the Gentiles, but now we are one new man in Christ. And then I've been talking about how to sum up Ephesians in eight words, but this week I modified what I believe the theme of Ephesians is. And as you look at the book as a whole, I modified it with you are rich in Christ, But then I added you are one in Christ because we're going to see, we saw in chapter two about unity. It's in chapter three. We're going to see it again in chapter four. So unity is also a theme of Ephesians. So walk worthy. So let's jump into chapter three. So the divisions in chapter three, there's Paul's calling and his empowerment. There's also the mystery 
been bringing my little handout for you, the mystery. And then there's Paul's prayer. Now, I am going to skip around some because Paul's calling and empowerment, it's all mixed in with the mystery. So some verses are the calling and some are the mystery. So I'll tell you where we're going. The key words in Ephesians 3 are grace and mystery. So if you will grab a pen, I'm going to have you mark some things on your handout as I read along. I'm going to teach you how to study somewhat how I study. So as I read, I want you to underline grace, underline the word grace, and then circle the word mystery. So we're going to start with Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 4. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, you can, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So for now, we're going to skip verses 5 and 6. So if you'll pick up at Ephesians 3, verse 7, and he's talking about the gospel. He says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So what I want to do is talk about what was Paul's ministry. And this is on your handout. It's also on the slide. So from these seven verses, he talks about different aspects of his ministry. Verse 2, the stewardship of God's grace was given to him for the Gentiles. Verse 3, the mystery was revealed to him. Verse 4, insight into the ministry was given to him. Verse seven, he was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to him. Eight, grace was given to him to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And verse nine, to bring to light the administration of the mystery. So we see that Paul received the ministry, the mystery, it was revealed to him. He was given insight into it, and he was called to bring it to light. He was made a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles and called to preach to them. And I like to see that Paul says he was made a minister. He didn't desire to become a minister or seek to be a minister. He was made a minister. And don't you know that there are times when God calls us to do things that we don't really want to do? Sometimes he makes us into things. So what else had God called Paul to do? 2 Timothy 1, 11 through 12 is a cross-reference. He says, for which, and he's talking about the gospel here, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I suffer these things. Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, which we'll catch in a few weeks, he says he's an ambassador in chains for the gospel. In Galatians 2.7, he says, I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. So these are the things that God, had Paul, that God had called Paul to do, to be a minister 
a preacher, a teacher, an ambassador in chains, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to bring to light the ministry. To do this, he suffered, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten. And it makes me wonder, how on earth did he do this? I mean, he was flesh, just like us. He had struggles, just like us. I mean, was he Superman? There's some clues that we're gonna see in the word for how he was able to do this. Because often God calls us humans to do the impossible things. When my children were little, I felt like God had called me to do something that was impossible. Gregory was in first grade at a private school and he was flunking first grade math. Now those of you who know Gregory, you know that he's highly intelligent. There was no reason for him to be flunking first grade math, but the reason was he was doing math on a third grade level and he was bored to tears and no one would challenge him. So I decided to homeschool Gregory and to homeschool Hannah. Now nothing prepared me for that. So there was one day when we were doing school upstairs in our schoolroom, and I barreled out of the schoolroom and I shut the schoolroom door behind me and I went into the bedroom and I shut the bedroom door behind me and I went into my bathroom and I shut the bathroom door behind me and I went into my closet and I shut the closet door behind me and I thanked God that there were four doors between us because I fell on my face and put my forehead on the bristly Berber carpet in that dark closet and I said, please, Lord, let my children live until Brian gets home. That was my prayer because I had had it up to here. I was desperate, I was exasperated, I felt totally unqualified and unprepared for what God had called me to do, to homeschool my children. I knew that I was gonna go down into the hall of fame as a homeschool failure. And we've all been in that place of empty desperation where we feel unqualified, ill-equipped, we can't do it. Perhaps in your job, there are challenges that you face and you don't have the answers. In your relationships, there are struggles and strains and you're working to rebuild. When you're raising children, there's no PDF handbook that you get that tells you exactly how to do it. In marriages, we have to deal with our selfish nature and our pride, and Brian and I are still working on that after 22 years. And even in ministry, God calls us to do hard things. He may call you to stand up and speak in public when you're terrified of public speaking. And so I want to encourage you tonight by looking at Paul's life because we are often desperate for God to help us. And unless he shows up, we're in deep, deep water. Paul was the same way. Let's look from the book of Ephesians, the, the four things he says God had called him to do. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a minister of the gospel. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was an ambassador in chains for the gospel. And so as I look at everything that God had called Paul to do, I wonder how did he do it? Did he feel like it was an impossible task as well? But I want us to go back to Ephesians 3, 1 through 9, where I ask you to underline the word grace. So here's a picture of where I underlined grace with my favorite hot pink color. And so when you do this, you wanna make a list of what you learn about grace. It's a key word in this book. 
So there are three places where we underline grace, and so I made a list of what we learn about grace, and this should be on your handout. The stewardship of God's grace was given to him for them, the Gentiles. Verse seven, he was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to him. Verse eight, grace was given to him to preach to the Gentiles and to bring to light the ministry. So there's a common phrase that I noticed in all three verses. Do you see it as well? Starts with the word grace. Who sees it? Grace was given to him. He says it three times. You can see where I circled it. Grace was given to me. Grace was given to me. Again, grace was given. So how did Paul fulfill his calling to preach, to be an ambassador, to be a prisoner, to be a minister, to be a teacher? How did he do it? What was given to him? Grace, grace was given to him. A cross-reference is 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored, labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So here's a quote that I found by John Bevere. God's grace is his empowering presence in our lives. Now, I went searching for quotes about grace because we've seen the definition of grace from the scripture, from Strong's Concordance, it's a gift. It's God's kindness towards undeserving people, but how does that help you do anything? So I went down a rabbit trail because scripturally we see that grace enabled Paul to do what he was called to do. And I was so tickled because when I was preparing Ephesians 4, I hid it in the John MacArthur commentary because he talked about there is a saving grace and then there's an empowering grace or an enabling grace. So grace is not only God's unmerited favor, it's the empowering presence of God in our lives to do what he's called to do. MacArthur said, the grace in which we stand not only saves, but enables. And we see that in these scriptures. So grace gives us the ability to do all that God has called us to do, even the impossible. A cross-reference is 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And last, this week, I had to preach this to myself. I had to say this over and over that grace was given to me, but there was something else that was given to Paul in addition to grace. If you look back at Ephesians 3, 7, he says, grace was given to me according to the working of God's power. And so that's also a theme that we've seen, that God's power is at work in us. And we're even going to see that tonight in Paul's prayer. Colossians 1.29, he says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily in me. So God's power gives us the ability to do all that he's called us to do, even the impossible. 
Now, if you'll look back again at Ephesians 3.3, can you see how Paul received the ministry? How was it made known to him? By revelation. So revelation was given to him. And then when you look in Ephesians 3.4 about the mystery, he talks about insight that was given to him. So there's a lot of things he's saying were given to him. So he was given wisdom into the mystery via insight and revelation from Holy Spirit. He didn't have to go and study and prepare and cram and everything. No, it was a Holy Spirit download. So God's wisdom gives us the ability to do all that God has called us to do, even the impossible. So Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles a people who walked in darkness, and he turned the world upside down, but he didn't do it single-handedly. He didn't do it alone. He did it because God's grace was given to him, God's power was given to him, and God's wisdom was given to him. MacArthur says the calling, the message, the work, and the empowering were all God's. So you too are not left empty-handed to do what God has called you to do. You're not left alone to surmount the impossible. God's grace, his empowering, enabling grace is given to you. His power is at work in you, and he gives you wisdom. And we see that all through scripture. God's grace, power, and wisdom empower and enable us. So in your parenting, God gives you grace, wisdom, and power. In your marriage, in your relationships, in the workplace, God gives you grace, wisdom, and power. In the ministries that he's called you to, God gives you grace, wisdom, and power. So you may do, have to do like I did. You may have to come away to a quiet place, put four doors between you and your problem, fall on your knees in the dark and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I have to have your grace, your wisdom, and your power. And God will do it for you, just like he did it for Paul. So let's look at Ephesians 3.8. Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. And what I have to share here, it's hard for me to share Usually when I write, when something, when I study, when something really hits me in my core, when I'm moved in my spirit, I'll write a blog post. Sometimes I'm brave enough to post publicly on the internet what I write. Some of them I just sit on because I'm scared. And what I'm about to share with you tonight is one that I've sat on for six months because I just haven't been brave enough to share it. So the term very least indicates less than the least. He was not just the least, he was the very least. And this was not his, his mock humility, but this was his honest assessment of who, he, of who he was. MacArthur says, because he had an unusually clear comprehension of God's righteousness, he also had an unusually clear understanding of how far short he fell of that righteousness. 
1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus, this is Paul writing, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. So he was the very least of the saints. He was the worst of all the sinners. So what sin could Paul be referring to? Well, before his name was changed from Saul to Paul in a Damascus Road experience, Paul was a leading Pharisee. He was, he was a Jew that was breathing threats against the Gentiles. We see him first in Acts 7. The very first time we see him in the Bible is in Acts 7 at the stoning of Stephen, which he condoned. In Acts 9, we hear that he was breathing threats and murder against the Gentiles. We don't know if he physically murdered anyone, but he agreed with it. He condoned it. So in 1992, I sat around a table of adults during a job interview. I had been saved about nine months, and I was interviewing for a camp counselor position at a Christian camp. And I don't remember anything else about the day but this question. What person in the Bible do you most admire? And I said, I admired Paul. And it was not because he was a great writer or a bold preacher or he was able to endure suffering. No, it was because he was the least of all the saints. And I felt like I was the least of all the saints and the worst sinner of all. I had only been saved for nine months and all of my sin, my baggage, it was still right there before me. It was very present in my life. Before I came to know Jesus, I helped pay for a friend's abortion. She was in her teens. She was pregnant. She was in trouble. She wanted an abortion. She couldn't pay for it, but I could. So I paid for it. I took a life. Just like Paul took lives, I took a life. And when I came to know Jesus and God opened my mind to the value of life and that life begins in the womb, that he has great plans even for little babies, I felt such remorse for what I had done. I was the least of the saints and I was the worst of all sinners. And I share that because I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord. You may be just starting you may have been walking with him for a long time, but you may be in a big pit of sin, and tonight you feel like the least of all the saints, the very least, and the worst of all the sinners. But what I want to do is encourage you that God can take the very least, and God can take the worst of all, and he can change them. He can change you. He can transform you from the inside out. All you have to do is repent, pray, pursue him, just lay it all down, surrender. You might need to go and confess to somebody what you've done, just like I did. But God can change you from the very least and the worst of all to someone who can change the world for Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you with that tonight. We see that from Paul. So let's talk about the mystery. What is a mystery? I've been holding up my slide for a few weeks. 
And I have another picture for you. This is the classic Riddler from Batman. He's got the big question mark. What is the mystery? So mystery in the Greek means to shut the mouth or silence. That which can only be made known by divine revelation to those illuminated by the Holy Spirit in a God-appointed time and manner. Wearsby says in the New Testament, mystery is, quote, a truth that was hidden by God in times past and is now revealed to those who are in his family. So a mystery is a sacred secret. So before I ask you to circle the word, the keyword mystery on Ephesians 3, 1 through 9, and we're going to look at that now. We're going to learn finally what the mystery is. Paul is quite specific about it. So before we skipped verses 5 and 6, so I want to read those now, and we're going to start with verse 4. And this is on your handout, Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what is the mystery. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the gospel, of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So I've been teaching you how to interrogate the scripture with the five W's and an H. I'm always afraid I'm going to stand up here and forget one of them. Who, what, when, how, where, and why. So we want to apply that to this verse, and this is on the handout and in your slide. Who, the Gentiles, what? Their fellow, and he lists three things. Their fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise. How? Through the gospel, where in Christ Jesus. You could also say how in Christ Jesus. It's really up to you how you do that. So the mystery is this. Salvation is for both Jews and Gentiles. Now you're probably saying, well, big deal, duh, we knew that. But just hang on, to, hang on with me, okay? So first he says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Before, last week we learned in Ephesians 2 that the Gentiles were without Christ, without citizenship in Israel, without covenants, without hope, and without God. But now they have exactly the same legal status before God as his chosen people, the Jews. They have an amazing, marvelous, boundless inheritance in Christ Jesus. He says they are fellow members. And I love this quote by MacArthur. He says things, I just couldn't say it quite as well. He says, they are full members of the body, linked by common life with every other person in God's holy family. They are not second-class in-laws, begrudgingly acknowledged as distant relatives. They are fellow members, indistinguishable in God's eyes from any other member. A cross-reference is 1 Corinthians 12, 
verses 12 through 13. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So lastly, Paul says that the Gentiles are fellow partakers. So as Christians, regardless of our status or position before we came to know Christ, we are now fellow partakers of everything that God has for us through the gospel. So the mystery is this. Salvation is for both Jews and Gentiles, which means that the Gentile believers are now united to the Jewish believers in one body, in Christ. No longer is that barrier of the dividing wall that we talked about last week, remember I tore it in half, but now in Christ, we're one new man. We are one group, one body. We have one access through one spirit. So you may think, Big deal. But MacArthur says that this idea was revolutionary at the time. The Jews in the early church, even the apostle Peter, remember how God had to reveal to Peter three times in a dream that it was okay to go to a Jewish, to a Gentile home. Even the apostle Peter had a difficult time accepting Gentile believers as being on the same spiritual level as the Jews. In the minds of most Jews, MacArthur says, their spiritual separation from Gentiles was absolute, that the, thought, that the thought of total equality before God was inconceivable. Now, I can't help it, but when I thought of the word inconceivable, I just had to go to Princess Bride. It was inconceivable. So in reference to Peter, when God gave him the dream about going with Cornelius, Peter says in Acts 10, 28, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So this mystery that Jew and Gentile were now one new man, this was a big deal. Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to look at the mystery from another passage, which is on your handout. This is Colossians 1, 26 through 27. He says, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in this passage, I made a list of the four things that he says about the mystery, and this is on your handout. It was hidden from past ages and generations. It's now manifested to his saints. God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory, of the mystery among the Gentiles. And then he says clearly, the mystery is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. And if you've studied that passage like I have, I have often wondered, what does that mean? Christ in me, the hope of glory. But when you put it together with everything that we've learned these first three weeks of Ephesians, especially that we're sealed with Holy Spirit, that God put part of us, part of him in us because he was gonna come back for us. The mystery is this, Christ in you, both Jews and Gentiles, now is the hope of glory for later. So Christ in all of us, part of God in us, that pledge, that inheritance, that we're gonna be taken to our heavenly home, the hope of glory for later. So the mystery reveals that the Gentiles will be saved along with the Jews. But know this, that the Gentiles, the church, do not replace the Jews in God's plan. God has a plan for the Jews. We see now that the church, they're the ones that are saved and not quite as many Jews by a long shot. But it doesn't mean that the church has replaced the Jews. If you look in Romans 11, and and that's called replacement theology. Paul does not teach that. We've tried to make it up to make sense of what we see with our eyes. But the truth is, in Romans 11, 25 through 26, Paul says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. So we don't replace the Jews as the church. We're one new man. The mystery is that salvation is for both Jews and Gentiles. So let's move on to verse nine through 10. And this is a harder verse that I probably could have just skipped, but I wanna bring one thing to light. And as we read it, you'll understand why I probably should just skip it. It's a little confusing. So the purpose of revealing the mystery, bringing it to light, he says, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, that's verse nine, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So why was the mystery brought to light? We see the phrase, so that. That tells you the purpose. It tells us why. Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What does that mean? The rulers and authorities are the angelic beings that were created by God And they're both good, and at this point, there are fallen angels or demons that are evil. They are created beings, and they they are not omniscient. So before the mystery was brought to light, they didn't know it. Just like no human knew it, the created beings that God made, the angels, they didn't know God's plan for the church, for the Jews and Gentiles, which were separated by that barrier, that enmity, that hostility, would be brought together. So this is something that was new for them. So God is glorified as his wisdom is manifested to the angels who can then offer greater praise to God. Wearsby says God is educating the angels by means of the church. 
But remember, there were fallen angels in the heavenly places as well, and we'll see that more in chapter 6. So I asked my son Gregory, who reads his Bible every morning about the time that I'm sitting at my computer, and I often interrupt him while he's doing that. So I asked him, Greg, what do you think this means? And Greg said, God is rubbing it in their faces, in the faces of the demons. And later as I read MacArthur, MacArthur agreed with him. So, you know, God is basically saying, Satan, you meant to kill Jesus. You meant to destroy my plan. But now not only are the Jews being saved, but the Gentiles are saved and they are united together, seated with Christ victoriously in the heavenly places. Satan, you overplayed your hand. You thought you won, but now this mystery is revealed to you through the church. So we're revealing that mystery to the, to the um, how does he say it, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So verse 12 says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So in the days of the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies and stand in the presence of God. And he could only do it briefly once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he had to go through all types of cleansing and preparations just to do that, or he could be killed. But now, but now in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. A cross-reference, which is one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of this, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is anybody in a time of need tonight? Anybody in a time of need? This is my favorite verse to do the five W's and an H because it fits perfectly. Who? Us. Let us. Anytime you see the phrase, let us, in Paul's letters, it's an exhortation. He's exhorting us, imploring us, entreating us to do something. Us. Do what? Draw near. How? With confidence. That describes how we draw near. Where? To the throne of grace. Why? So that we might receive mercy and find grace to help. When? In time of need. So you take all those words and you break it down into the five W's and an H. And it's just so clear. And I just want to point out that God knew we would be needy people. He knew that we would have times of need. And so that's why he says, come with confidence, with boldness before me. It is a throne of grace. And when you come here, you're not going to find condemnation or anger. What are you going to find? You're going to receive mercy. You're going to find grace that's going to help in your time of need. And that is such encouragement to us tonight. So we've talked about how God called and enabled Paul. We've talked about the mystery. So let's move on to Paul's prayer. 
This is the second of two prayers of Paul in the book of Ephesians. The first one focused on enlightenment. He prayed that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so that they would know. This one focuses on enablement. The first prayer was for believers to know their riches in Christ. This second one is for them to use it. Wearsby says there are four requests in Paul's prayer. They're not isolated, but more like four parts of a telescope. One request, request leads to the next one, to the next one, and so on. And I wish I had a telescope for a prop tonight. I don't have a lot of props tonight. So each prayer builds on the previous one, making a grand possession of enablement. And Wearsby also notes that these prayers, along with Paul's other prison prayers, deal deal with the spiritual condition of the inner man, not with the material needs of the body. Because Paul knew that if the inner man was as he or she ought to be, then everything else would take care of itself in due time. He prays for that inner man. So read with me along, read along with me on your handout, please, starting with verse 14 and through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So these are five verses, and there's over 100 words here. It is a very wordy prayer, and so I'm going to teach you how we're going to boil this down to about 25 or so words so that we can get the gist of what he's saying. So what I do when I study is I put in parentheses adverb phrases. You might remember from eighth grade English that an adverb, I had to Google this, tells where, how, and when. Okay, and then an adjective describes something. So you'll often see these in prepositional phrases. So I draw parentheses around these. So as I read this again, I'm gonna help you draw your parentheses. He says that he would grant you, put a parentheses around, according to the riches of his glory. That tells how God's gonna grant them. To be strengthened with power, And if you'll put parentheses around through his spirit and in the inner man, it tells how they'll be strengthened and where they'll be strengthened. Those are adverbs. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. That's an adverb phrase. So put parentheses around through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. Now, being rooted and grounded in love tells how they'll be able to comprehend. So put parentheses around that. With all the saints, to me that tells where you'll be able to comprehend in that group of people. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Put parentheses around which surpasses knowledge. That's describing an adjective, the love of Christ. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
So this boils it down to one-fourth of the words, taking out these adjective and adverb phrases, the prepositional phrases. So let's look at what we have left. Oh, this is so much easier to understand. That he would grant you to be strengthened with power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts and that you may be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So we're gonna put these things into categories and look at them. Paul prays for strength, depth, apprehension, and fullness. So let's start with strength. In verse 16, he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. MacArthur says Paul is not praying for God to give these riches to believers, but that he would grant them be strengthened, to be strengthened by God. I lost my place. I'm gonna read it. According to the riches that they already have. He wants them to live lives that correspond to the spiritual wealth they have in Christ. We've hit that pretty hard the past couple weeks. So the inner part, the inner man, is where God dwells and works. So how is the inner man strengthened? He says that they would be strengthened in the inner man with power. We saw power in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.19, that they would know the exceeding greatness of his power toward them. And we also, in that first week, reviewed all the things that that power of Holy Spirit enables us to do. Just a couple. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5. Paul says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 2 Peter 1, 3 seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So Wearsby says that the power of the Holy Spirit is enablement for Christian living. He enables us. Okay, here's a Lisa Moore quote. A lot of times I'll try to boil it down to a sentence. The source of all effective ministry is the power of the Holy Spirit, not of men. So how are we strengthened with power? When the inner man is fed regularly with Netflix? No, no, no. Amazon Prime? No, no, no. Church? Some. But it's the word of God. That is what is gonna strengthen you with power. If you're not strengthened with power in your inner man, then I encourage you to spend time regularly in God's word. How you define regularly is up to you, but I would say at least two to three times a week reading God's word, not a blog post, not watching a message, not listening to a podcast, not reading a book, not reading a devotional for five minutes, but in the unadulterated word of God. That's how you'll be strengthened with power in your inner man. So my prayer as I um, finished up this study was, God, I thank you that my feelings aren't an accurate indicator of what you can do through me today. It's not my feelings that will tell what God can do through me. It's his power that dictates what he can do through us. 
So how is God's power working in your life? You might need to be strengthened through his word to receive that power. So let's look at depth. Ephesians 3, 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you be enrooted and grounded in love. So again, so that is a phrase that indicates purpose. The purpose of being strengthened with power in the inner man is so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, depth. The word dwell in the Greek means to house permanently, to reside, to settle down into a dwelling. You know when you move, you've got all the stuff and after a while, it all settles down. You get everything in its place and you can settle down. Dr. Kenneth Woost, who is a professor of New Testament Greek at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, defined dwell as to settle down and feel at home. Wearsby says what Paul was praying for was a deeper experience between Christ and his people. He yearned for Christ to settle down and feel at home in their hearts, not just a surface relationship, but an ever-deepening fellowship. So I want to tell you just a little bit about my physical home where Brian and I have lived for 12 years with our children. So this is my den. In my den is a 20-year-old comfy couch. It's fraying a little bit. We bought it before Gregory was born. Within reach, there's an afghan that you can grab to warm up. There's a dented coffee table that my mother gave us 12 years ago. We can turn on the gas logs, some candles, and you'll see the Christmas lights that we burn year-round on the mantle. We can light some candles, and you'll see the light streaming in through the skylights, and you'll hear the music coming in from the ceiling. You'll hear the soothing sounds of the fountain. This, you're going to feel at home. Recently, we had someone visit our house, and he said, this feels like my grandma's house. It's comfy. It's homey. Some people say it's country even, but it's homey. It's warm. So in Ephesians 3.17, Paul prays for the Ephesians that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And as I studied this and as I looked at my heart, I wondered, would Jesus be able to settle down and feel at home in my heart? There are areas in my heart that are black and dingy and reek to the high heavens. There are some, still some places in my heart that need Holy Spirit to work. Think about your heart tonight. If Jesus were to move into your heart, what would he find there? Would he find jealousy? Would he find greed? Would he find vanity or worldliness? Would he find anger? Would he find bitterness? We're all human, so he's probably going to find some selfishness and pride. It's just the battle we're always going to face, selfishness and pride. Would he find doubt and unbelief? I think that's where he finds the most mess in my heart, is doubt and unbelief. MacArthur says, until the Spirit controls our lives, Jesus Christ cannot be comfortable there, but only stays as a tolerated visitor. Jesus enters the house of our hearts the moment he saves us, but he cannot live there in comfort until it is cleansed of sin and filled with his will. So let's renovate our hearts so that Jesus can settle down and feel at home there. 
Let's remove the things that would make him feel uncomfortable and create an environment. Let's create an environment where he's not only welcomed, but he's the honored guest. You may wonder, how do I do that? That's a whole other teaching. But briefly, I'll just say, if you're struggling with sin, confess it to somebody. That is always the first step to remove the power of sin is to be accountable. Um, What is it? I wasn't planning on saying this, but it's what James 5.16 that says, Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. I also highly recommend prayer ministry. If there's a persistent sin you can't get rid of, call the church office, make an appointment for a prayer ministry. We want to help you to deal with sin because we're all going to deal with it. The enemy's always going to be seducing us and tempting us. And so we want to keep our hearts clean. Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. So when Paul says that they should be rooted and grounded in love, we need to have our spiritual roots deep in the love of God. This was a great quote. If there is to be power in the Christian life, then there must be depth. That's by Wearsby. There was a time in my life last year that was really hard, and I don't have time to go into the details, but there was a day I just asked God, how can I even stand? How am I even functioning and still ministering and caring for my home? And this is the word he gave me, roots. Roots. Because in the easier seasons... I had spent time in his word. I had put down roots. So when the trial came and the winds blew and the waves tossed, I was able to stand. Now, it weren't pretty, but I didn't get knocked over. Thank the Lord for his faithfulness. So let's look at apprehension. He says that that you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth. So comprehend this word in the Greek doesn't mean just to mentally grasp, but it means to lay hold of. We want to lay hold of the vast expanse of the love of God. So let's talk about those four words because I always get confused what they are, and hopefully this is gonna make it clear for you. And I, I can't remember which commentary. I think this was the NIV So when he says breadth, he's talking about the whole world. This is what this commentator thought it meant. Breadth was the whole world. Length was from eternity to eternity. Height was to raise both Jew and Gentile to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Depth was deep enough to rescue us from sin and Satan. So there's breadth, length. Height and depth. The dimensions of Christ's love are immeasurable. You can't measure them. They're infinite in all directions. (laughs) I almost did like YMCA. (laughs) I started doing that too fast. Felt like YMCA. So Ephesians 3.19 says, and to know. So he's praying that they would be able to comprehend all those dimensions and to know. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And I love that, that he says his love, Christ's love, which surpasses knowledge, it's unknowable. So Paul is paradoxically praying for them to know a love 
that is ultimately unknowable. You cannot know it in fullness because it is infinite. So what would your life be like if you knew the immeasurable, unknowable love of Christ? What would your life be like if you really knew the immeasurable, unknowable love? My answer was my life would be fearless. My life would be fearless. Perfect love cast out all fear. So let's briefly look at fullness. Ephesians 3.19 says that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And we're gonna see this again in chapter four next week. Fullness, spiritual maturity is a theme of Ephesians. MacArthur says to be filled up to all the fullness of God means to be totally dominated by him with nothing left of self or any part of the old man To be filled with God is to be emptied of self. So we should pray this prayer for ourselves. And hopefully now we've boiled down those hundred words to four. So you can remember that Paul prayed for them to have strength, depth, apprehension, and fullness. So in conclusion, I'm only going to say that once. Let's look at the end of the prayer, which is on your handout. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I like to look at this in the New King James Version. Sometimes I'll memorize them. I I can look at my spiritual life by what version of the Bible I was studying and memorized. I've got good news. I've got NIV. I've got New King James. I've got the NAS now. In the New King James, he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. So let's look at this in an outline form So he says, now unto him who is able to do all. He could have just put a period right there and stopped, but he didn't. Now to him who is able to do above all. He could have stopped there, but God is bigger than that. To him who is able to do abundantly above all. But God is bigger than even that. Now him, to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think, how, according to that power that we've already talked about, that is at work in us. Wearsby says the power of Christ, like the love of Christ, is beyond human understanding and measurement, and that lives in us But Wearsby goes on to say that unbelief, unconfessed sin, careless living, worldliness in action or attitude, all of these can rob us of that power. And a Christian robbed of power cannot be used of God. So there's the encouragement, you're full of power. But then there's also the warning, you have to guard it and protect it or you'll be robbed of it. So as I finish studying this amazing prayer, I came to some conclusions which I thought were so good. I put them on Facebook and they're on your handout. What I learned in Ephesians 3. Jesus' riches 
are unfathomable. His love, which surpasses knowledge, is unknowable. The size of his love is incomprehensible. The dimensions of his love are immeasurable. His power is unlimited. What he can do is unimaginable. He is exceedingly, abundantly above all. That's our Jesus. MacArthur says, when the Holy Spirit has empowered us, Christ has indwelt us, love has mastered us, and God has filled us with his own fullness, then he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Father, we just thank you that you, you're just so amazing that our, our finite minds can't comprehend your infinite love, the dimensions of your love, your infinite power. God, I pray tonight that you would grant us to be strengthened with power in our inner, inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we would be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that we may be filled up to the fullness of God. Father, I just bless these faithful ones who have come and who have so patiently listened and taken notes. And God, I pray tonight that they would leave encouraged and strengthened. And God, that you would bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.